You're listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We're a house that will empower you in your walk with Christ to get free, live free, and set others free. This is our Sunday service series. For more information, go to FHUS.org. Enjoy. All right, so this is High Places, the fight of your life. And uh, especially after last week, I just, my head was spinning. I'm like, man, this has been so good. And so I wanted to uh, address this idea of how do you actually tear down a stronghold? We've learned that it's important to tear down as well as to build. We've been looking in the book of Judges. And uh, I wanted to give some really clear and practical application and instruction about when you engage with a stronghold. First of all, how can you recognize the strongholds that you have in your life, as well as tear them down. So before we do that, I wanted to do a quick recap of what pastor's message was last week. The first thing is we learned that there are two different kinds of mixture. The first being that you can worship foreign gods in the temple of Yahweh. I think that's pretty clear and obvious, right? You can bring idols into the temple of God that don't belong in the temple. And so you would obviously take those idols and you'd clear them out, you'd remove them. However, there's a second kind of mixture that's a little less obvious, and that's worshiping Yahweh in an undesignated place. Now, we saw the example of King Solomon, who actually went up to the high places that were on top of the mountain in order to offer worship to Yahweh, but these high places were originally created to worship other foreign gods, such as Baal, Asherah, etc. See, these high places were created by the foreign nations because they worshipped the stars and the, the planetary objects, and so in their minds, they thought, well, the highest place geographically is going to be the place that's closest to the gods. So we're going to build a high place up on this mountain so that we can be as close to them as possible. That's going to be the holiest place. So that's what they did. But then, of course, when Solomon came, God gave Solomon a command that says, no, I'm going to have you build me a temple. And in that temple is going to be a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And it's going to be in a place called the holy place. And that is the only designated place for worship. You won't worship me like the other foreign deities. You're not going to worship me in the customs and the methods of man. You're going to worship me according to the way that I have commanded you in this temple that I'm commanding you to build. Which they did. They did worship Yahweh in the temple. But in addition to that, Solomon continued to worship Yahweh in these high places, which was basically according to the customs of man, not according to the customs of God. So it was an undesignated place. And unfortunately, that mixture that Solomon had ultimately caused him to fall by indeed switching over to the other kind of mixture by then inviting other foreign gods and beginning to offer worship to foreign deities. And that caused the ultimate downfall of his kingdom. And that's something that we have to, you know, pay attention to, right? So the designated place in the Old Testament was the temple of God. But then we saw that Jesus reveals that in the New Testament, he's saying there is a new designated place. And what is that? In John chapter 4, we saw in verse 19, this is the woman at the well. Jesus interacts with her and says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem, which was the temple in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Everyone say, in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So what Jesus is saying is, look, the designated place for worship has been the temple. However, a time has now come when this is no longer the designated place of worship. In fact, the new designated place of worship is the place of spirit and truth. But here's the interesting thing. It's not actually a new designated place of worship. It's actually the same designated place of worship because what was in the temple? It was the holy place. 
And the place of worship always has been the holy place and it still is the holy place. The problem is that now the holy place is no longer in the temple. It's in you. The holy place is in your spirit. You are now the temple of God. We are now mobile temples where the Holy Spirit inhabits us, which means you all have the ability to access the holy place. Except the way you do it is how? By being in the spirit and in truth. That is the way that you access the holy place. That's why the title of pastor's message last week was from high place to holy place. How do we access the presence of God? How do we come into a place of true worship? By coming to a place of holiness, by living in the spirit and by living in truth. Amen? Amen. Okay. So the designated place hasn't changed. The holy place simply moved into us. Okay. Now Jesus shows the way to access the holy place now is in the spirit and in truth. So how do we do that? By eliminating mixture. You see, what is the opposite of spiritual truth? A soulish lie. You see? Now, come on. What does that mean? That means that when we try to worship God in a place of our soulish lies that we carry with us, those can be the mentalities and the mindsets that we have, the lies that we believe about God, the lies that we believe about ourselves, about others, the lies that we believe about the world that we live in. It is a barrier that prevents us from accessing the presence of God in true worship. Now, like Solomon, you can still be thinking that you are offering proper worship to God, and many of us are in that place, right? There's areas and pockets of mixture in our lives. Now, remember, we are compartmentalized. Everyone say compartmentalized. That means there are areas in your life where you're living in truth and you're in the spirit. Hallelujah. But there are places in your life where maybe you're still believing a lie. Maybe there's areas where there is a stronghold in your heart where the enemy has still continued to bombard you with these things that you believe, maybe from a trauma in your past or maybe from something that you've experienced or a a pattern from your family that's just been continued to pass down for generations. And you continue to go to that generational high place to offer worship in your heart. You're sincerely trying to offer worship to Yahweh, but you're doing it from a heart posture that is not actually pure. And that's what we're talking about today. What is 2 Corinthians? By the the opposite of spiritual truth is soulish lies. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And it goes on to say, what are strongholds? They are, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So this tells us, what are the strongholds that we face? Strongholds are now in the soul. Okay? They are the lies that we believe that influence our behavior, especially emotional reactions. And people always want to know, how do I know if I have a stronghold? It's very easy. Look at your emotions. We always say your soul is not your command center. It's your information center, right? Your mind, your will, your emotions. Those are the things that tell you and inform you about what is happening in your own heart. So the things that are causing you to get the most emotional Ding, ding, ding. There it is. There's your stronghold. That's the area where every time that button gets pushed, for some reason you find yourself, oh, I just lose it. Or, oh, I just get so, so frustrated. Or I get so uh, upset. I get so discouraged. Whatever causes you to panic. Wherever fear suddenly has entry, if it just touches this one issue. Or maybe you're in an argument with your spouse, and when they say that one thing, it just sends you over the edge. There it is. It's the places where you have the strongest reactions that you don't even have any control over. Those are the places that are likely where a stronghold is residing. Right? Here's some thoughts, just a few potential ones. I'm a victim. I have to fight to be heard or valued. People will abuse or control or manipulate me unless I exert dominance. I'll never have enough. Nothing matters more than making sure I have enough. So I'll spend a lot on items to make me feel safe and secure and well off. Or maybe I'll work myself to death trying to gather finances out of fear. My father disappointed me. So that means God is going to disappoint me. I can't trust him to actually take care of me the way that I need or want. So I have to take matters into my own hands. 
I was hurt and betrayed by someone who said that they loved me. I can't trust anyone. They'll always betray, always leave or abandon me. So I won't let anyone get close enough to hurt me ever again. I'm not worthy of love unless I prove my value and worth. But in every metric that I use to judge my value, I fall short. So I must not be valuable or loved. That's just a handful. But hopefully you start to get the idea. These are the strongholds that we carry. And the way that we defeat these strongholds is we need to understand how to identify the soulish lie and how to remove it and replace it with spiritual truth. Amen? So I'm going to walk you through step-by-step how to do this. And the way we're going to look at this is actually by uh, looking at Joshua. Because Joshua ended up destroying a great stronghold called the city of Jericho. And that... That was, you know, it's a great story that we all know and love. But the the thing I want to look at is there's a whole process leading up to the destruction of Jericho that's actually very clear and very important. And it gives us instructions today for how we deal with strongholds in our lives today. Because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So the things that we see in the natural, in the Old Testament, of tearing down this physical stronghold, we can apply those same principles today to be able to defeat our spiritual strongholds. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's take a look at it. Here are the steps to tear down a stronghold, and I worked real hard to get all the C's lined up. (laughs) So the first is the crucible, which is, of course, the wilderness. The crucible is the purification of our lives, right? Then there's the crossing of the Jordan. Then there's a circumcision. Then there's a cultivation and a consecration and ultimately the conquering. Now, this is going through the first few chapters of Joshua, chapters one through six. So I'm going to be jumping. Uh, I'm not going to go through every single verse. Obviously, that would take forever. Um, But we're going to look at each one of these uh, as we go through. And you'll see that it leads us through this quite cleanly. So first, let's look at the crucible of the wilderness. The crucible of the wilderness is meant to refine you by clearly revealing the stronghold so that you can see it. Now, you can't deal with something that you don't know is there. So what is the method by which these things are revealed? So let's look. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, this is, now it's not Joshua, this is before they actually enter into the Uh, into that place. They're still in the wilderness here. So Numbers 14, verse 22. This is God speaking to Joshua, not Moses. Not one of those who saw my glory and the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times. Not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who's treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. And we saw that this was after the spies went in to investigate the land of uh, Canaan, and they went into that region, and they came back saying, wow, it's really great, uh, but there's giants in the land. And so the response between Caleb and Joshua and the other spies was different. Caleb and Joshua, they said, we got this. We can take them, right? But the others were like, no, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes, right? So we saw there was a difference between them. There was the response of fear versus the response of faith. That the different spirit that Caleb has that God is referring to here is a spirit of faith. So what is God saying here? If we continue on, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land that I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. So what did God just say? He said, listen, those without faith are not going to inherit the promised land. And the same is true for us. Listen, and I'm not, remember, your life is compartmentalized. So the areas of your life that are not in faith will not see the promised land. That's the way it is. See, the children of Israel, they made it to the promised land, but only after every part of them that had no faith died. The purpose of the wilderness is to kill off your lack of faith. 
It's to take every place, to cause it to be exposed, to cause it to be revealed, and to put it to death so that the only thing that survives the wilderness is your faith. And the way that you know the wilderness is working is if you're dying. That's how the wilderness works. If you're dying, it's working. If you're suffering, it's working. If it's causing you to suddenly react to all these things, it's working. Because it's revealing to you the areas that are susceptible to suffering because you're not in faith. The areas that are not in faith are going to react to the wilderness. The areas that are in faith are good to go. It's ready for the promised land. But wherever you're not in faith, you're going to react. You're going to grumble. You're going to say, oh, what about this? What about that? I wish I was still back in Egypt. I wish I had the quail. I wish I had the leeks. Did you just bring us out here to die? Yes. Yes, he did. He did bring you out here to die. The parts of you that have no faith. See, the promise is always received by trust, by faith, by obedience. See, a lot of times I hear people say, oh, well, God promised me this. He promised me that. Yes, but the promise is only received by faith and obedience. I've seen people, they get a prophetic word. Somebody comes and speaks something powerful over them. They're like, woohoo, all right. That means I get to just go sit home and, and kick back and just wait for it to come to me. No, God doesn't bring the promise to you. He brings you to the promise. But the way he brings you to the promise is through a dying process in the wilderness. Hallelujah. See, it's not about trying to make the word come to pass, but making yourself into the person who can receive the word. God is all about, see, the promise is for a future version of you. It's not for you right now, otherwise you'd have it right now. The promise is for a version of you that has been purified through the process of faithful obedience to the things that he's commanded you to do. And that means coming into the holy place, eliminating mixture, eliminating sin from your life. And that's why the crucible of the wilderness is so important. Our promised land is not a place of external blessing. It's a place of internal maturity. Many people are holding on to a promise saying, well, when am I going to get that job? When am I going to get that relationship? When am I going to have that purpose and that career or whatever? They, they look to the externals. They say, well, when I'm in a place of comfort, that's my promised land. No, my friend, the place of the promised land is an internal maturity of the spirit of God. How do you know? Because I look at Paul writing the New Testament. He says, in all things, I have learned to be content. Why? Because he's in his promised land. He's in suffering. He's being beaten. He's being whipped. He's being attacked. He's being abused. He's being persecuted. But he says, I have found myself content in all things. Why? He's in his promised land. It's not in the externals. And so many times we've heard that from different, you know, different denominational teachings. And, you know, even Pastor Ron was talking about the prosperity gospel and all these things. And, and even though there's some pieces of truth to the fact that God is your provider, but then it causes people to look to externals waiting and saying, that's when I know I'm in my promise. No, you know that you're in your promise when in your heart you're settled because you trust God and you're obedient to him no matter what's happening in your life. That's the promised land. And that's what we should all be aiming for. So the wilderness that takes us there consists of suffering and difficulty, trials and adversity, misunderstandings, miscommunications. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I see people, they say, well, this, you know, this person did this or said that. And, and I'm like, listen, it's probably a miscommunication. And sure enough, they come and they talk it out and they figure out, oh yeah, it was totally misunderstanding. That wasn't what they meant at all. And, you know, but what was it? It was exposing and revealing a fear that was inside of them. They said, pay attention to that. God will intentionally allow miscommunication and misunderstanding to occur to reveal to you what's in your own heart. Yeah, listen, that shows that you're afraid, that you mistrust people, that you think that people are just out to get you. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. The wilderness reveals your heart. So be thankful for the wilderness. It is a good thing. It's painful, but it's a good thing because you should, listen, why does the book of James say, take, you know, take joy for many trials, right? Because it will bring about your maturity by perfection through perseverance, right? Like this is it's clear in scripture that this is the purpose of these things. So literally take joy because this is God showing you, hey, did you notice this? 
Did you know that this was in there? Did you know that this was in your heart? Because I want to bring you to the promised land, but I can't until you recognize this area of your heart that needs my touch. It's his kindness and his grace and his mercy that does these things. And remember, all the problems the Israelites had in the wilderness, they're fake problems. They're fake problems. They thought, oh, we don't have our leeks and quail. And God's like, yeah, you have manna, you have enough. Oh, no. And every time that they, every time that they were attacked by their enemies, it was because they disobeyed God in the first place. All of the things that they complained about, oh, we don't have any water. God gave them water. It maybe wasn't in the time that they wanted, but he gave it to them. See, all of the things that we complain about, all the things that we are afraid of, that we think are going wrong in the wilderness, we're actually okay. We are actually okay. The real problems are in the promised land. <laughs> Those are the real problems. The real big actual problems. Those are the enemies that you have to now rise up and fight to dislodge. They didn't have to do any fighting in the wilderness. Come on. You all think you're fighting. You're fighting yourself is what you're doing. It's really true. You think that you're fighting against the enemy. Oh, the enemy. There's no enemy in the wilderness. It was them fighting their own impurities, their own complaints, their own problems. Listen, the real fight starts once you get across the Jordan. Let me tell you, that's the real battle. And God wants to build you up so that you're in your own unity with yourself, let alone with the people around you. Come on. You, God wants you to be united in yourself so that you're fully ready to obey him by the time you get across the Jordan. Because if you get across the Jordan, you're like internally conflicted. Good luck. <laughs> Don't me shut me down when I'm preaching good. <laughs> All right. So I think that's enough about the wilderness. So you got to recognize the stronghold by remaining humble in these circumstances so that you can see the things that God is revealing to you. Amen. Okay, now what's next? They cross the Jordan. This is a firm decision to leave the past behind and move forward toward the promised land, and there's no going back. I'm going to read you a story. In the year 1519, Hernan Cortez arrived in the New World with 600 men to conquer the Aztec Empire. Cortez who was wildly outnumbered, succeeded because there was no other option. There was no turning back. Why? Because he promptly gave the command to sink all of their ships. <laughs> the men, of course, resisted, saying, but we won't be able to return home. Cortez's response was, well then, if we want to return home, we're going to have to take their ships. The situation was clear, fight or die. And they succeeded two years later. Why is that? Listen, the action of faith leaves no plan B. There's no such thing. It's like, nope, fight or die. I'm moving forward or I'm dead. That's, that's it. There is no turning back. And when they crossed the Jordan, the Jordan closed up behind them. There's a, you can't go back, right? It's not like God's going to reopen it so that they can go backwards. Like, okay, guys, come on. We'll go back into the wilderness. Nope, it's done. It's a one and done. That's it. You open it up, you go through, you close it, and you better win, <laughs> Okay, Joshua chapter three, verse one, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. Now, I love that. Listen, you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. How do they know where to go? They're following the presence of God. It's like, oh, I don't know what to do. Just follow the presence of God. I don't know where to go. Just follow the presence of God. Now, here's the thing. Many people have lived with their stronghold for so long, they don't know how to live apart from it. They don't know what their life could possibly be like. And I've heard people tell this to me. They're like, I know I need healing here, and I know I need to let go of this mindset, but I'm afraid to because I don't know who I am apart from it. I don't know what my life would be like without it. I've never known how to live in trust. I've never known how to live in this way. And, and it's, it's because the stronghold has been around for so long, even generationally, that the whole identity of their family lineage is tied up with it. Yeah, yeah. So what is God saying here? 
Follow my presence. You've never been this way before, but if you follow me, I will show you the way to go. Just trust me and leave it behind you. You're entering a place that is unknown, but it's okay because my presence is leading you and guiding you. Verse 11, see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, for one from each tribe, and as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowed downstream, will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So Joshua called together the 12 men that he'd appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord, your God is uh, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So notice, they didn't just cross the Jordan, but they put a big pile of stones on that side of the Jordan so that, watch this, if anybody ever thought, I don't know about this, I'm going to turn back, they'd run into this big pile of stones to remind them, oh, that's right, we made a memorial of the decision that we made to remind ourselves that we're not going back. We made a memorial to put our foot in the ground, to draw a line in the sand and say, this is a momentous occasion that I am choosing to remember and create as a memorial for all time, that this was the moment that our lives changed and we are not going back. So that if anybody turned, they would see it. It would be the first thing they saw. Don't forget the decision you made. Don't forget the thing that you decided to do. Don't forget that you chose to leave the past behind you and you're moving forward. And that's the thing that's doing it. Listen, you, you guys have heard my story. When I was a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz, and I knew that God was calling me to drop out of the program and pursue ministry training, to join the internship, and to, to, to be raised up in that capacity. Man, like I, that was a big decision. And I told everybody about that decision. And I, I mean, I made sure there was no plan B. I made that decision after only consulting Pastor Robert and praying it through. And I knew that I knew that it was what I was supposed to do. So I made the decision. I talked to my research advisor. I talked to the head of the department at... You see Santa Cruz, and I said, listen, I'm dropping out. Don't call me. Don't try to reach out to me. There's no hard feelings, but like, listen, I'm done. And if anybody tries to say anything else, like it's, it's over. And I made sure that it was a done deal before I told anybody else so that I couldn't go back on my decision so that nobody could talk me out of it. Even if I started to panic, it was too late. <laughs> I burned the ships. <laughs> it's, there's no going back now, <laughs> right? I'm moving forward. And it was a decision that everybody knew so that there was no way that I could, hey, I don't know. I'm good. Hey, I thought you said that this was done. I thought that you said that you were going forward. Oh, you're right. So now like, I have no choice because it's a memorial. It's a big pile of stones that everybody can see and they all know what it's about. I made a decision. Are you memorializing your decisions or are you soft lobbing your decisions so that you can back out on them? I've seen so many people that are like, well, I don't know. I'll dip my toe in the water. And oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know right? You're, you're, you're trying to dip your toe in the Jordan rather than cross over it. So many times people make those soft decisions because they're not really ready to let go of that wilderness. They're not really ready to let go of the past. And I'm telling you, you'll never defeat a stronghold that you're not completely opposed to, that you're not absolutely dedicated in every fiber of your being to destroy. You have to, I mean, really. And that's what this stage is all about. You have to get to a place between you and God where you're done. You are done. And you said, yes, I am completely ready. Let's do this. There's no turning back. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be a fight. There is a fight. But it means that you are done playing tiptoe. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear. And they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. That means the enemy is afraid of your decision. Decisions release the anointing of God. Decisions bring deliverance. So when the enemy sees you make a decision, it puts fear in his heart. See, the people, we're all afraid of the enemy. Oh, I don't know, the enemy, oh, this big stronghold. Listen, when you make decisions, the enemy, he starts shaking. Inside his little stronghold is like, uh-oh, 
This thing is going to come down. I know it because you've made a decision. The enemy sees your decision. He's afraid. They cross the Jordan. Now the people inside Jericho are afraid because they just crossed the Jordan, guys. They're on our heels. The enemy is afraid of you making a decision. You want to make the enemy afraid of you? Start making decisions. Hallelujah. Verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath, Haraloth. So what is the circumcision? This is a cutting away of the unclean which was revealed to you in the wilderness. Now listen, you're going to probably go through multiple different seasons of wilderness because you're compartmentalized, remember? Maybe go through a wilderness in your finances until you learn how to trust God. Then you go through a wilderness in relationships until you learn how to trust people. (laughs) Right? I mean, like there's multiple areas, right? Everybody's going through something. Everybody's going through some wilderness where God is causing you to die in some area of your life until you trust him more and then move you on to another area. It's continual. It never ends until we meet with Jesus. Hallelujah. So anytime you need something removed, suffering will reveal it. Humility accelerates the process and then you make a decision and then you have to cut and remove. Okay? The length of time you spend in the wilderness depends on your humility. The more humble you are, the faster the wilderness. The faster you can recognize, okay, Lord, I was wrong. Cut. Joshua 5, 9. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Now, I find this so interesting, right? God didn't say the moment that he pulled them out of Egypt, he didn't say, ah, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt today because I pulled you out and now you're at the foot of the mountain. No, he didn't say that. They had to go through the whole wilderness. They had to cross the Jordan. Then they had to circumcise. And after the circumcision, God says, today, 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 I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. The word reproach means disgrace. That means up to this time, you've been carrying with you the uncleanliness of your past. But the moment that you've made a decision and you've circumcised it, now the disgrace is removed. Now the attachments, the soul ties, every piece of the past that was still clinging to you is now gone. It wasn't when I delivered you from their hands. It wasn't when I brought you through and I crossed through the Red Sea. It wasn't even when we crossed over and you made the decision by crossing the Jordan. It was the circumcision of actual removal of those things. Now, the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away. That word rolled away, I thought it was interesting because it gives the same picture of, uh, I looked at where it's first used. In Genesis 29, it talks about how the flocks of of the sheep were gathered and the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of a well so that now there was a flow of water that could be received from the well. And in the same way, we see that another place where that word is used is when Jesus was in the tomb and the stone was rolled away. So we see that the rolling away gives this picture of life being restored to a place that was once dead or was once thirsty. Where they were dead and thirsty in the wilderness, the the rock that was blocking the flow of life while they were in the wilderness today has now been rolled away. Life has been restored because they've circumcised. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love this. Let's continue. Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped Everyone say, the manna stopped. stopped. The day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now, I might be a little disappointed, right? It's like, Lord, there was this manna. Like I mentioned, for 40 years you grew up, and for 40 years, it's like every day you open your door and there's like a box of cereal in the front of your, you know, (laughs) in front of your door. It's like, all right, hey kids, we got our breakfast. And then suddenly it stops. It's like... 
Where'd it go? <laughs> like, come on, you know? And imagine you're a kid and this is all you've ever known. It's like, where's the manna? You know, like, I want, I want my, my daily manna. Where'd it, where'd it go? <laughs> I'd be a little disappointed, right? It's like, what happened, God? Well, they started eating the produce of the land. In other words, they got a taste of the promised land. Now, how does the manna come? God would release it from heaven and it would just appear spontaneously by no work of the people. Now, they had to gather it and everything, but the people didn't do anything. The manna just came by the sheer provision of God. But the fruit of the land is very different. The fruit of the land had to be cultivated. It had to be sown. It had to be watered. It had to be harvested. It had to be grown. The fruit of the land requires personal responsibility. You see? So... What does that mean? Cultivation is where you now take personal responsibility to sow water and reap the sustained fruit of righteousness rather than living in survival mode like in the wilderness. Write this down. Personal responsibility is what separates survival from revival. I'll say it again. Personal responsibility is what separates survival from revival. Everybody wants revival, but then everybody wants to stay in the wilderness and eat their manna. And you'll never experience the fruit of the land while you're still eating manna. It's never going to happen. And the only way you leave behind the manna is by being ready to take personal responsibility and start eating the fruit of the land. See, the moment they ate the fruit of the land, God said, okay, you're ready to grow your own food. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, God, I don't don't know about that. Like, come on, can't we have a little bit of both? Nope. God does not allow mixture into the promised land. Sorry, he does not allow mixture into the promised land. You can't bring the principles of the wilderness with you. You can't bring the victimization of the wilderness with you. You can't bring the fear of provision with you. The only way you get into the promised land is by knowing, okay, God's taking care of me. Good, now you can start working for your own food and you'll know that I'm gonna cause the rain to come and I'm gonna be the one to make it grow and and it's gonna work. But you gotta work. The promised land is cultivated. The promised land, listen, it's just like Eden. Eden didn't just grow. Adam's job was to make the garden grow. Adam's job was to take care of it. It didn't take care of itself. And we think the promised land is just this place where everything is, you know, sunshine and rainbows and it all just works. Yeah, no, you work it. That's why it works. Adam was made to work the garden. We are made to work the promised land. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Right? The works didn't get you out of Egypt, but they keep you in the promised land. You're saved. Listen, you're in the wilderness, you're saved, but you're not living in the promise. And many times, you know, people try to make it all about the one issue of salvation. Oh, it's not by works. I agree with you. Salvation is not by works, but the promised land only comes about by your faithful obedience in your works. Because God is not, he's not just creating people for him to just feed you all the time. He wants to make you co-laborers with him, co-rulers with him. He wants to work with you. You're his partner. Did you know that you're meant to replace the, end, the angels? Like that's, that's God's desire. And we could, I mean, I don't want to go off into a whole bunny trail about that. But the, the Bible says you're, to, you're eventually going to judge angels. We read that in scripture. Why? Because God wants to raise you up as his rulers. When, the heaven, uh, when heaven comes back down to earth at the end of the age, we're ruling with him at his right-hand side. But the only way that you get there is by learning how to work. <laughs> he's not going to give the promised land to people who are still hanging on to the manna of the wilderness. Listen, the wilderness represents the unfruitful soil of the heart. Remember in the parable of the sower? Jesus talks about how the, the soil represents the heart. When you're in the wilderness, your heart is unfruitful because it's full of mixture. It doesn't bear fruit. Wilderness doesn't bear fruit. The promised land does bear fruit. Why? Because it's now fertile soil of the heart. The promised land is a place of the heart where it's fertile because you've gone through the process necessary to make it able to grow good fruit. Hallelujah. So survival was never meant to be our eternal mode of living. It was only meant to teach us faith. See, only immature children are fed by their parents. Mature children learn how to feed themselves. And in the wilderness, you look to God. But in the promised land, God looks to you. It's true. 
Oh God, oh God, oh God. I don't see them doing that. Only when things went wrong, right? Only when they were in the promised land and Achan sinned and then Israel lost their battle to Ai. That's when Joshua went and tore his robe. Oh God, oh God, what happened? It feels like we're in the wilderness again. Yeah, because you brought a little wilderness with you. Achan, eradicate him and you'll be back in the promise again. Oh, okay, they stone him and everything's good. <laughs> That's what happens. If you're in the promised land and a little bit of wilderness gets in, you'll know. You'll know real fast. But hopefully now you're in a place where you can actually identify it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, so what does this look like? That means you meditate on the word day and night. That means you sow it, you water it, you keep it before you, you consume it, you speak it, you live it, you engage yourself completely in the word of God. You are feeding on truth. That's how you destroy a stronghold. You see the lies of the past and you see the truth of the word of God and you choose to consume this. You choose to consume the word. You don't wait for someone to pray for you and solve your problems. You don't wait for the next conference, the next Freedom in Christ seminar. You don't wait for the next boost. You don't call up your leader because you're discouraged by the same problem for the umpteenth time, even though God's marching orders still haven't changed. You get in the word. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me with the same problem, that I've been counseling them for the same thing a thousand times, and I say, What's, has God changed what he said? No. Then keep doing it. Go and encourage yourself in the word. Go and grow. Stop relying on the manna. Stop living in survival mode where you're clinging to every next word that a leader is going to give you or every next Sunday service or every next conference. That's survival. And yes, God is faithful. God is good. Yeah, praise the Lord for those miraculous moments of blessing. Praise the Lord for those moments of outpourings. But you were never meant to live in survival. You're meant to live by the fruit that you learn to cultivate by being in a place of intimacy with the Spirit of God through prayer and through reading the Word. And this is an issue that a lot of charismatics have. And listen, we're charismatic, hallelujah. But a lot of charismatics, they get so used to just the hands being laid on them that they don't know how to cultivate anything themselves. They don't know how to get into the word. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to build a relationship with God in their own time because they're living from blessing to blessing because the glory is present. Hallelujah. Thank God for that. But they don't learn. They end up getting spoiled in their own personal life because they haven't learned how to build it. And so then they live in survival mode. So many charismatic churches end up in just mere survival mode. And then they never go beyond to conquer the territory that God's placed them in. It's a shame. So God is looking to you. Hallelujah. We're almost there. Joshua 5, 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the Lord in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's armies replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua made it to the holy place. It took all these steps before he got to the holy place. But now he's here. And what happens in the holy place? He has an encounter with the presence of God. Because where can God always be found? In the holy place. Always. You get to the holy place, God's always there. He's always there. So now that he's there, what happens? Suddenly, he gets the strategy. Suddenly, he gets the understanding of what's going to happen. Now, here's what's really powerful. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither. Wait, but I thought God was for me. Where does it say that in Scripture? Oh, I hear somebody say, oh, it says if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, if. If God is for you who can be against you? Go read it. Romans 8. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a pretty big if, my friend. (laughs) That's a pretty big if. Listen, I read other places where it says, hey, you were once an enemy of God. That means you can be God's enemy. See, we think, oh, as long as, no, no, God's for me. That means I can do whatever I want. He's still for me. 
Not if you're against him. If you're living against him, if you're living for your own will and not his will, guess what? You have different missions. And you're putting yourself against him. God's going to build his kingdom, whether you like it or not, whether you're part of it or not, and whether your decisions align with it or not. And that means when push comes to shove, his kingdom versus yours, his always wins. So God may not always be for you. And here we see Joshua, hey, are you for us or enemies? Neither. The question isn't whether or not God's for you. The question is whether you're for God. That's the real question. And so, when, and so what does he do? He bows down and says, okay, what message does my Lord have for his servant? He's like, oh, okay, uh, let it be known. I am your servant. I serve you. I am for you. Tell me what to do. And in the place of consecration, you get the wisdom and the clarity for how to defeat the stronghold. The holy place of full surrender, humbly aligning yourself with God's will, not your own, is where strength and prophetic clarity come to conquer the promised land. It's only when we come to that place of full surrender where you say, I'm willing to let go of my opinions, I'm willing to let go of my ways, I'm willing to let go of my desires, my ambitions, and all the things that I thought were true and all the things that I want. God, it's your way, not mine. I surrender. I'm your servant. I'm not waiting for you to serve me. I'm waiting to serve you. And many times we want God to serve us in our will and our desires. God, when is that promise gonna come? When's this gonna happen? When's that, oh God. It's like, when are you gonna do what I'm asking you to do? Right? Like, I have a mission. I have a desire. Are you going to follow my will? That's the question. But it's once you're in that place of consecration, finally we have the roadmap for conquering. Now, conquering is, I like this, it's the unavoidable end result of a process of learning to live by faith through God's Spirit by choosing to apply truth in the place of surrender. Listen, you don't just wake up one day and tear down a stronghold doesn't happen. You have to go through the steps. It takes time. It takes intention. It takes effort, faithfulness, trust, determination, dedication. It doesn't just happen. You have to partner with God through this process. Now quickly, let's look at this. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. Listen, those gates, they're fortified because of you. <laughs> the enemy's afraid of you, so the enemy puts up these gates. Gates are defensive, right? It says the the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means you're on the offense. The enemy's afraid of you. He doesn't want you to break through the gates. So the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once. Now, you guys know this by now, right? March around seven times and, you know, on the seventh day, march around a whole nother seven times and then shout and then the walls will come tumbling down. But watch this. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. So what is this? I want you to notice couple of principles. The first, the number seven, <clears throat> is the Hebrew number of completion. So it doesn't literally mean march around your stronghold seven times. For you, it means you march around that thing until the job is done. You finish it. You complete it. And if it's not done, maybe you go through seven rounds and it's just still there. Keep going. What does the scripture say? Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Many times people will march around it and they get discouraged and they shrink back. You can't go back. You cross the Jordan. There's a, there's a wall of rocks back there. You got to keep marching around this. You got a wall behind you and a wall in front of you. You march around the wall in front of you. Don't turn back to the wall behind you. Okay? You got to keep marching around until the job is done. And the other thing is this. When the walls come down, that wasn't the end of the battle. That was the beginning of the battle. And this is something I really want to leave you guys with that this process, it's a very good process, but by the time you get to the end of the process, you're just beginning another one. Because when you get to the end of this, yes, the walls start coming down, but now it's your responsibility to rise up and actually go in and to eradicate the enemy that resided within those walls. 
This is the time where it's not for you to shrink back and say, oh, thank you, God. The walls came down. Everything's good. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. No, this is where the battle begins. This is where now it's time for you to go and build. It's time for you to go and to especially take the word and fill yourself with it and consume it. And now, just as pastor preached about a few weeks back, now that you've torn this down, now it's time to build the new stronghold of the Lord in its place. And then in that place, that's where the battle really lies. And you see that with the children of Israel. This was the very first engagement that they had in taking the whole rest of the promised land. They tore down the stronghold and that commemorated the beginning of their conquest. The tearing down of a stronghold in your life is the beginning of God's conquest through you to begin to completely bring your whole life into a place of the promise by which then you can step in in your externals and in the places that God has planted you and called you to step into the promise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So once again, the steps to tear down a stronghold, the crucible of the wilderness, you experience circumstances which expose the stronghold in your heart and mind. The part of you that is not in faith must be put to death before you can advance. Crossing the Jordan, in faith you make a bold, committed decision to confront the stronghold, burning the boats, and setting your heart to look forward. Circumcision, you separate the unclean thoughts, attitudes, motivations, and behaviors, and remove them through repentance, renouncing, and rejecting. Cleansing yourself of all unrighteousness by the power of the blood and the Spirit of Christ. Cultivation, you take on personal responsibility for cultivating truth in place of the lie that you once clung to being willing to move on from a place of mere survival. This means confessing the word, guarding it, living from it, and refusing to turn back to the old manna. Consecration, committing yourself to humbly following God's ways and not yours. Faithfully submitting every desire, ambition, expectation, opinion, belief. Recognizing that you won't have full clarity until you've done so. You find God in the holy place and receive strategy and direction. And now conquering. You keep pushing, building yourself up in the word to rewrite the lies with truth, refusing to stop until the job is complete and remembering that once the walls come down, the battle has only begun. In order to experience total victory and advance into the promised land, you're expected to keep up these steps in a lifestyle fitting of the promise. Otherwise, you could lose the promised land as Israel did. Let's all stand to our feet. You're listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We're a house that will empower you in your walk with Christ to get free, live free, and set others free. This is our Sunday service series. For more information, go to fhus.org. Enjoy. Enjoy.